0: Hello and welcome to One For The Road with me, Sober Dave. Each week I'll be talking to some incredible guests and I hope by hearing each episode they will offer you a valuable source of inspiration and insight. From incredible life stories to a variety of important subjects, all to help you with your quest to change your relationship with alcohol. All of my guests are at different points in their journeys and each of them have powerful and uplifting stories and information to share. I hope you enjoy the show. Don't forget to subscribe and, of course, leave a review. Today's guest on One for the Road is the wonderful Kerry Walker. She's an ambassador for the amazing NACOA and she works for Oasis Project, a recovery service in Brighton, And she's also a child of an alcoholic. She's managed to turn her pain into purpose and the work she does helping others in the community is incredible. Don't forget to listen to the short ads at the beginning. It's so important as it allows me to continue providing the content that you love. And also don't forget to press the follow button. Finally, thanks for all your support. I really hope you enjoy this week's show. So hello, Kerry. Welcome to my podcast, One for the Road. I'm so grateful you've agreed to join me today. How are you?
1: I'm good, thank you. It's lovely to see your face.
0: And yours. And I've just seen your home and it looks fantastic. It looks really lovely.
1: Oh, thank you.
0: So I wanted to get you on today um, because we've had a few children of alcoholics on, Sarah Drage, uh, John Taylor, Amy Dixon. But we've ne- known each other for a while and I came to see you in Brighton where you, uh, worked alongside Oasis, um, the charity and you did an exhibition in Brighton. And when I was on the train, um, you suggested that maybe I could do a talk. And, um, it, do you know what? It was absolutely brilliant to come to that event. And, and when I stood up there and talked, I felt like a fish out of water because I, I was the alcoholic, you know. But after the talk, I realised actually the importance of sharing my story from the other side. And and at the end people came up to me and were really like engaging with me and, and welcoming and, you know, and I realized that there is a place for me uh in this community to talk. And I, I'm really grateful to you as well for giving me that space to talk that day. But what I wanted to start with is to, if you don't mind is to go back um, at the beginning of your story when you was growing up because I saw that reel you did with your mum and it literally broke me Um, and I think that's when we started chatting. So are you okay to start from the beginning?
1: Okay, so (laughs) my mum, sounds like she was really confident, really popular, really beautiful lady who... uh, I don't know, growing up just sounds like she had an amazing childhood. It sounds like, I don't know for definite. Uh, Teenage years, did really well. She was the youngest woman ever to drive a HGV class one. She was the first 21 year old ever to do it. You know, she was doing really well um, with everything. And then when I was four, um, she met a man who was violent very quickly. It was like a real quick toxic relationship where she moved in with him after a week. married him after a month and I remember when we met him because he'd just been beaten up in a shop and we went to help him and that was it she was instantly drawn to him for some reason um and I remember being four the first time that I saw her eyes change and I don't know how I knew but as a four-year-old I knew my mum was drinking and nobody told me but I just knew so I always think when people say they don't know children do know and even if they can't make sense of it they know there's something going on they can feel something isn't right and they can feel a disconnect from a parent um and after that my life was pretty much chaos i think four was the last age i was a child after that i became a, a carer a protector um, definitely keeping that family secret and and doing it at all costs. you know completely surrendering myself to make sure that my mum was okay And that my family were okay and even, you know, trying to protect my grandparents from it. Um, So I think until the age of nine, there was a lot of violence when we finally left my stepdad. Gosh, by the time we left, things were so bad that we were locked in a one bed flat by him. And the day we left, he was passed out on the sofa and I crawled down the corridor, sneaked the keys out of his pocket and said, come on, mum, just grabbed her and we just ran. And that was kind of the statement was in by them. It was just me taking control and saying, this is it. It kind of felt like life or death then. Um, oh. He wasn't messing around anymore. You know, he was losing control of us. And, and, you know, when you hear about people in domestic violence and you think, why aren't they keeping their child safe? Why aren't they leaving? Because the alternative for my mum was he would threaten to hurt me. And, and she didn't want that. So she had to stay with him. And they do it very slowly, and they slowly take all your independence away and your confidence, and you don't, you don't have the strength to leave. And while this was going on, I was living between my grandparents, and my mums. My granddad was amazing. So he would just follow me around the country, wherever I went. And when mum started drinking, he'd swoop in and get me, and he'd take me for a while and then send me back to her. But um, So I'd moved, I think I've moved around 32 times now, and I'm 41. Wow. But yeah, but most of those were in my childhood. So when you said, oh, you've got a lovely home, a lovely home is really important to me. You know, a a home that I feel is my roots. It's my safe space because I didn't have that when I was young. You know, I'd go home and the bailiffs had been around and all my stuff had been taken or I wouldn't have a home. You know, at times we lived, we've lived in some random places. We've lived in places like, I remember sleeping on a shop floor for ages while my stepdad was working in the shop. Uh, We've lived in bed and breakfast. We've lived in hotels. We've, you know, we've lived in really random places to try and with my stepdad and all his chaotic life. Yeah. So, so, so when she left him, you'd think that's great, but actually the drinking was so strong then um, the symptoms of everything she'd been through that she, she was just broken by it all. And I moved back in with her when I was 11 and I stayed with her until I moved out at 19, but she was just drinking all the time and she was so ill. Um, so my teenage years were really hard as well, in a different way. There wasn't violence anymore. She had, I had a new stepdad who was lovely and calm. But it was really hard as a teenager to have to carry on keeping that secret. Sorry, I've just spoken a lot
0: there. No, that's <laughs> fine. It's really moving, actually. And um, what, were you, did you say you were nine when you grabbed the keys to move? I mean, the responsibility on your shoulders there as well. you such a young age is immense.
1: Yeah, yeah. The fact that we were being I mean, I look back now, I think it's crazy when you look at a nine year old to think we were being we were locked in. We weren't allowed to leave this flat by then. Um it was it was dangerous, I think, and I knew how dangerous it was, so I had to just take the chance. Because if he'd woken up, gosh, I don't know what would have happened, but we did get away. And I still remember just running down the road to the bus stop and that feeling of freedom. But the problem is with alcohol, the freedom isn't there when you leave the relationship, you know, you can't just take away the problem, can you? You can't because the addiction's still there. Mum yeah. couldn't stop drinking then because she
0: was so traumatized from it all. Yeah. And how bad was her drinking?
1: So how old would she have been? I think she started drinking when she was thirty two. Because I was four, maybe thirty. Uh it was like it was bottles of cider, things like that, big bottles of strongbow. And it was always hidden. So you wouldn't actually know it was happening apart from you know, from seeing the symptoms of it, you didn't see her drink that often. She drank in the pub. She could really drink in the pub, but but not to extreme any more than other people. Um, but it was just, yeah, a lot of hidden. So I would guess it was like a big bottle of Strongbow a day or something like that. Uh, I think there were stronger drinks. She drank wine as well. But I didn't really know exactly how much was being drunk because I couldn't see it. I never mm. knew. But I, I would often find bottles and try and tip them away, which... You know, as a child, even until 4 years ago, I didn't know that was a bad thing. I thought it was a good idea to tip it away because I thought, you know, I've got a day of being sober. And if I stop a drinking, well that's that's the answer. But actually, she'd always find another way of drinking, but she'd be a lot angrier. So yeah. it's the worst thing to do, but that's all I knew and you know, I don't I don't regret it because I was doing the best I could with what I had at the time.
0: Yeah. I always remember Sarah Drave saying in the podcast that we did about um pouring her dad's booze away and stopping him seeing the kids and and you learn in hindsight don't you especially with the taking the drink away is actually it could be dangerous as well if she was dependent on it
1: yeah yeah it was really bad when my mum stopped drinking so we'd have like you get the irritation and then you'd see her sort of getting sweats and stuff but after a few days she'd be hallucinating and oh my god it was so scary to live with because I didn't know what was going on and the first time it happened I think I was 12 and um yeah, and she was just absolutely doing really bizarre things. I had my friends around. Oh, it was awful. That's some of the most traumatizing memories are from when mum stopped drinking um, and trying to stay with her through that and support her through it. Um, and the kind of the only way to do that was to agree with her. Um, with everything that she was saying was happening and eventually she'd calm down and come out of it so I can see why she wouldn't stop drinking because it's horrendous you know you hear about withdrawals from things like heroin but withdrawals from alcohol when you're physically addicted uh, are severe
0: Mm. and for for you you were micromanaging so many things from an early age wasn't you and how did that knock on to you then did you have a relationship with alcohol at an early age or did you avoid it?
1: I did hate alcohol for me because I didn't see myself as the same as my mum. So I didn't avoid it. I think I first drank when I was 14 and I started and that was it. And I would get, I'd drink a bottle of vodka before I even went out. You know, I really wanted to go out and blow out. So I would just get as hammered as I possibly could. And at first, mum wasn't supportive of it. Obviously, I was very young. She would say, don't drink when you go out. But then after a while, by the time I got to about 16, she loved it because it was another excuse to drink. So she'd actually get me the vodka and she'd sit with me and my friends. And it would feel lovely at the time. She'd be like, oh, yeah, your mum's really cool. She gets this drink. But it was because she wanted to drink. And it was the only way she could connect with me was like, well, I'll have a drink with you then. So I was... yeah I got myself in some terrible states really you know toxic relationships really low self-worth um it's really sad looking back on on what state I was in in my teens but when she died when I was 21 I I think I had a couple of nights out where I really embarrassed myself and I decided to stop drinking for a year um and I've never been the same since so all I'll have now is one or two drinks when I go out and everyone laughs at me and calls me a lightweight but that's all I need now. I can't seem to get to the stage where I lose control. Um, I don't let like myself
0: now. It's yeah. It's amazing how some people can do that because I know millions that can't. But you, you've mm-hmm. got a lot of history there. Right well, before your mum died. I mean, watching this reel. That um, when this is released, I I try and share that if it's still on your page. But it was so powerful to see how your mum changed in the images and that's what got me because it started off with her like beautiful, young, fresh to how she what she turned into. And when I look at the before and after pictures of me, it's like, oh my God, I was probably on the verge of death. You know, like all the medication I was on and the weight gain and the, the drinking daily, the bad food choices, the mental health that it created for me, you know, like, I don't know how I survived, but when leading up to that, could you really see she was in trouble before she died? What, or was it a slow burner for you?
1: Um, well, as far back as I can remember, she didn't have a good relationship with food. And she would admit she maybe had an- anorexia, so she'd cook me dinner or make me something, but she wouldn't eat herself. Um, and she got very, very thin. And I remember being very wobbly-legged. You know, she was like Bambi. And it mm. wasn't always when she drank; she was just very wobbly. And then I remember, and this is a bit, um, <laughs> a bit graphic, but she'd she'd chew food up and actually spit it out. So she would have something like some sort of meat but she couldn't swallow anymore. And I remember the first time I saw her do that, I thought, what's she doing? And she said, oh, that's a bit chewy. And then eventually she went on to more like liquid. So she'd she'd buy herself some Complan or 40 sip. They're like those milkshake drinks. And that's all she was having towards the end. But I thought she had anorexia. But looking back now, did she just, is that quite hand in hand with people who drink? I've heard it can be that you don't eat anymore sometimes uh, when it's quite extreme. And so she had this really skinny legs, but then she had this huge tummy that was yellow. Mm. You know, she was full of fluid. I remember it literally seeping out of her skin, the fluid and her ankles. If she wore socks, they were like, you know, like peg dolls. They go in where the elastic was. Um, She went into hospital. Gosh, it was a few months before she died. And they actually, there's a funny story here, which is not that funny, but um, I was at work. And I suddenly started having a panic attack and I thought, gosh, where's this coming from? And I couldn't breathe and my chest was tight and my boss sat me down. And eventually I came out of it. She was in hospital at the time and I ran granddad. I said, oh, granddad, it's all getting too much. I've had a panic attack. He said, your mum's just collapsed and we had done it exactly at the same time. And she'd had too much fluid drained off her stomach, like litres of it.
0: Yeah. And she
1: collapsed because of it. And at the very same time I'd collapsed. And I, it was just really interesting to see that, that bond we had. And and that's how it always felt with her. You know, every time she was in pain, I was in pain. I, it was like that mother bond, that mother daughter bond. We were just always so connected. So it didn't matter when I moved out and I saw her less. You know, you say you put all these boundaries in place. But when your parents drinking, you take yourself away from it. It's worse. It was for me because now I didn't know what she was doing. I didn't know if she was safe, if she was having a breakdown. I couldn't control anything anymore, and it felt okay when I could control it because I, I kept her alive a number of times. she would have died if I hadn't been there, you know to pull her out of rivers and all sorts of things um so yeah it's it's really hard when you
0: when you leave them How do you deal with that now, like have you had intensive therapy or how how, how do you cope with that
1: oh I've had so much, and I continue to so I had Sort of person centered therapy for years, which was great when I was going through it. But I realized a couple of years ago, um, I think Sophie Kaye was speaking with Nakoa and she talked about complex PTSD. And I thought, oh, God, yeah, that's what I've got. Because very often when I'm in the here and now, something will happen and it will take me right back there mm. to something I've been through with her. So I had um, EMDR therapy, which really looks at sort of inner child work. And it was, oh, it's life changing for me because. Uh, you know how harsh I am with myself as an adult now to look at little me and really see that I shouldn't have gone through all that has been really helpful now in you know when I do get anxious and I do worry about things to be kind to myself and say like this makes sense based on what you've been through but you are safe now and everything is okay but instead of pushing it down and feeling ashamed of my anxiety to be able to really sit with it
0: it's really fascinating isn't it looking at the inner child stuff because I, I did um, a course with Josh Conley and his breath work and that, and and it was a it was a individual one. He he gifted it to me to help me out with what I was going through, right? And I always remember him saying to me, "So, what do you? What does little Dave look like to you? Um, what do you want to say to little Dave?" But the fact he said little Dave made me burst out crying because I was such a fragile boy, you know, like insecure. Um uh, no confidence, low self-esteem and that. And and it brought me like what you say about coming from now back to to that moment. I was standing right in front of the 14 year old me then. And it was the weirdest thing. It brought up all this emotion in me that I didn't know what to do with at the time, you know. It's so powerful.
1: Yeah, it's really hard because you, you don't usually connect on that level. You can remember yourself as a child. But you're looking at it through your eyes now. But mm. when you can actually picture the little you, because that's what EMDR does, you you see it from you now, and you are watching little you. And it's gosh, heartbreaking to see what you what you did have to have to endure and how you felt and when you couldn't speak to anyone. Um, but it's it really has helped me. I am definitely still traumatized and I, you know, I feel it every day still in some ways, but I think I'm doing a lot better because of getting support whenever I need it and really acknowledging when I am struggling and not just going now I've got to be strong I've got to carry on I need to help everyone else that so actually it's okay to get help for yourself as well when you need it.
0: A lot of uh, children of alcoholics. we had this conversation together like when they say you know was I not enough and I've talked about that myself of uh, my own son when I was drinking and he was definitely enough it was more about me but do you still go through those feelings of not being enough, or have you managed to work through them?
1: I think there's complete. Oh, it's just so different all the time. I could tell you practically now. I know it wasn't to do with me. I know t- it was to do with addiction, and my mum had her own demons. Um, but deep down, I still feel unlovable because of it. And at times when I'm struggling, if I come into conflict with someone, or if I'm tired ill you know having a rough time i feel unlovable and it's because of that you know my mother wound is deep and i think i'll always be pretty heartbroken that i couldn't save her and that nothing could yeah it's it's still there definitely i don't think i don't know i just don't think it can ever go away completely and and how it's hard to make sense of completely yeah
0: it's that rescuer role we were talking about earlier isn't it um before this like that's your role now isn't it being a rescuer and is it tapping to the fact you couldn't rescue your mum that makes you feel like you failed maybe
1: yeah I think um I think it is just what you become in life I think when you do it from such a young age it's that kind of people pleasing if I am good enough if I try harder everyone will be okay but I'm responsible for everyone else's happiness so I've got to keep that up When actually I'm not, and everyone else doesn't have to be happy. You know, I'm not responsible for any of that, but it's easy for that to kind of, yeah, for that to happen. And uh, I I just think it is a big part of me, but I really try and think about my own needs as well now. Um, And that actually, you know, if people are going through problems in life, you shouldn't rescue them because they can do that themselves. You should be there to support people, but not to be like, right, I know what you need now. I'm going to do all this for you. Yeah, I've really changed that because in being a rescuer, in the rescue in that triangle, the drama triangle, you make another person a victim. Mm. And, you know, with my friends and family and stuff, I, I wouldn't do that now. If people want my support, I'll give it them. But I'm really conscious now to not be that rescuer.
0: Yeah. The drama triangle is a whole new conversation. Rescuer, victim, persecutor. And we all go in that constantly all day. And I've really learned a lot of uh, how not to do that, mm. to try and stay on the outside and a little thing um that I quite often talk about are WhatsApp group chats that I've seen people get involved in a conversation that's actually got nothing to do with them. And it's like, well, don't stay in it then. Come out, yeah. you know, silly yeah. little things in life that we do that we get involved with yeah. when we don't have to. And it's, you know, about supporting someone is sometimes just listening. You don't have to fix You can just listen and that's enough and help them make their own mind up, you know. Um, Yeah. What led you to What? When did you find them? So
1: I was scrolling Facebook one day. Many, gosh, what year was it? Probably about 2013. And uh, I saw a competition for Recovery Street Film Festival and uh, I, and it was just about your recovery and i thought well i'm not recovering from addiction but i'm recovering from my mum's addiction so i decided to enter um and somehow i won it and i wanted to do something with the film i didn't show it to anyone i just went to the went to the film screening sat at the back they brought me my award over i couldn't even stand up i was so anxious and um and i thought what can i do so i googled children of alcoholics found nakoa and just said would you like to use my film and then that was it. Once you join the COE, you never leave.
0: Yeah, And
1: yeah, and just the thought that, you know, there could have been someone confidential at the end of the phone because I would never have spoken out. And it doesn't matter who tells me that schools are different now. I would have been in danger to speak out. So my life would have been in danger. I couldn't have gone and spoken to anyone. So it's not always safe for children to speak out, but I could have rung a confidential helpline where I knew that they wouldn't know my name, where I lived or anything, and they could have helped keep me safe in my own way. They could have helped give me strategies to keep safe and to make choices and to and to look at things from different angles, not just through a child's eyes, you know, to see were there any ways, any adults I could speak to um in a safe way. So gosh, yeah, I think it was I think it was founded when I was young, but obviously I didn't know about it and just oh, it's amazing the work that they do.
0: It's so incredible to have that chat line, you know, like I I was talking to someone the other day, I think it was peers on there saying that, you know, young kids sometimes ring up, just asking for someone to talk to about their feelings. And I I did a talk with Sarah Drage at a school and um, people come up to me individually as the drinker asking advice on how to deal with their parents. And there was one fella that used to lock himself in his office and drink. And she knew it. She, she was like 16, I think. And she, you could see the hurt in her eyes, you know, of confusion and not knowing what to do, what to say, how to support her dad, you know. And as I said to you earlier, like that's an incredible weight on your shoulders, isn't it? Like what you went through growing up with that responsibility and confusion and probably feelings of rejection as well is like because your parents. They leave you when they drink, don't they? You know, they're not present. And this is quite often what I talk about. It's like a look in the eyes, you know, the vacant look. And this is where you, growing up, become hypersensitive. And I imagine from an early age, you felt quite alone.
1: Yeah, yeah, alone, really different to everyone at school. I just look at, you know, all my peers and think they got a normal life, but I hadn't but also thinking about how others feel even now i'll go into a room and i'll be checking with everyone you know if someone gives me a slight look differently i think oh what's happened there you know i can sense everything and i could tell you know i'll be at work and someone will be sitting away from me with their back to me and i go over and i go are you all right and they'll burst into tears like how did you know because that's what my brain does but i don't know how i feel I find that really hard. Yeah. Um, if someone said, how are you? I'm like, I don't know. <laughs> so getting to accept how I'm feeling and and respond to that has been hard. I kind of work at this until I burn out. <laughs> I'm pretty, I'm not very
0: good at kind of working out when I need to rest and things. That's quite kind of avoidance as well, isn't it? I realised that after last week, I took a little mini break off the back of my dry Jan lives, right? And I turned off social media and I turned off my phone, really, full stop. Uh, And I realized actually, God, all these thoughts that are coming through haven't been there for a long time. And it was really difficult for me to manage some of them, you know? And I realized that I've replaced one escape mechanism with another, and that's to work, you know? It's another avoidance. Distracting
1: your brain. It's like eating. I'll often sit in the evenings and eat loads when I'm struggling because it's another distraction. I don't want to feel how I feel, so I'll just feel full, or I'll just, yeah, binge watch something. Or it's all—it's really hard to be in your body at times when you when you're mm. traumatized. It's easier to just find something else, keep busy, especially mm. when you're doing something good for others. Social media is a gosh, yeah, that can really give you those hits you want, those dopamine hits. But actually, you again avoiding how you're feeling, aren't you?
0: yeah you are and and what it does it doesn't allow you to have your own free time because i get messages from all over the world all different time zones and and some messages are from people really needing help right there and then so i have to have boundaries as well you know Mm. and there are times that i think actually it's 10 o'clock on a friday night and you've sent me a message and there's a high chance you've been drinking so if i answer that message then i'm going to get wrapped into a loop there so I don't reply to the morning. It's, it's, it's yeah. a full-time job sometimes, social media.
1: Yeah, you really do need boundaries around it, don't you? Yeah. yeah, And, and again, that rescuer role can come in. It's, yeah, you can, oh well, gosh, you could get awful messages at that time of night that you feel then yeah. responsible for. And yeah, I think that's great to wait to the next day sometimes.
0: And sometimes it makes you wonder why we rescue. And for me, it was, I think it's the feeling of wanting to be liked. And, I, you know, that's why I drank. So I shapeshifted around so many people. And since I've stopped drinking, I've had to work on that hard with myself of, you know, you're not going to please everyone all the time. Uh, like yourself more. I've done a lot of uh, self-development work uh, and it has helped a lot, actually, um, in that area because I used to try and rescue everyone all the time.
1: It's, it's a hard, that's a really hard one for me, not being liked. And it's something that I continually work on because I think because of my upbringing, I can feel very annoying. (laughs) And people always say, oh, you're not annoying. I'm like, no, I'm fine with that. I talk too much sometimes. I'm a bit, I'll talk over you. I'll, I don't know. I just do things and I think, oh, no, I shouldn't have done that. And then I think, well, that's me. And if people don't like me. Yeah, yeah, I am. I am. I'm passionate. But if people don't like it, it's okay. You know, everybody isn't meant to like me. Yeah. And as long as I've got my people around me who do love me and care about me, it's okay if everybody doesn't like me. And, and in pleasing everyone, I'm not being authentic because I'm not being me. No. So people aren't experiencing the real me. They're experiencing a character. So now I'm really trying. Even when I see people go like, oh, you're being annoying, I think, well, it's okay. It's, it's fine. <laughs> At least I'm being myself. And I just always felt I was too much as a child because if I, I wasn't just feeling to blame. I was told I was to blame. You know, if things went wrong in our house, it was like, well, it's because you've done that. Uh, now, yeah, I'm going to drink because of you doing that or, yeah, like my stepdad would get angry. So I always felt to blame and I always felt I needed to change. And now I think I don't want to change anymore.
0: Oh, it's so difficult, isn't it? And moving on to your work now, because there's something inside of us right we turn a bad experience into something that can help others so at what point in your life did you feel like you need to support others with similar issues in their childhood and whatever
1: well I was a family support worker for years from when mum died but that wasn't particularly addiction that was just sort of family struggling But more recently, it was it was when my daughter was two that I decided to volunteer for Oasis and to become um, a volunteer for NACOA as well. And I started working in the Oasis creche because I just wanted to work with the children while the parents were in recovery. You know, I could really I could really feel what they were going through. And I think when you've been there, you can kind of spot the signs. And you can see the little child that's being really well-behaved, but you know, actually they're trying to please, and you don't just see them as a child who's being well-behaved. Or you can see the chaoticness and them trying to make sense of it. And so I really enjoyed working in there. And then um, and more recently, I've got a job as a co-facilitator for parents in recovery. It's called Mellow Parenting. And I never thought I would be able to stand up in front of a group and talk. It's just never been me. I just feel, gosh, the most great imposter syndrome but I absolutely love it. And it's given me a new level of respect for people in recovery and just, they're just amazing to, you know, just every day in recovery. I just think, wow, yeah. how are you doing it? How are you, you know, parents who've had their children removed, yeah, that have gone to rehab, that are, that are trying every day to do everything that social workers are asking. It's just incredible. And to be that support for them, and, you know, I share I share bits of my own experiences with them as well of, of my childhood. And and it's just this amazing space. So I'm loving that um, at the moment. That's that's kind of the main part of my job that I'm really enjoying.
0: It's really eye opening, isn't it? When you see the different degrees of this drug, how it affects people. I, I am trying to be a peer mentor in a, a day centre in Clapham. And I would go there twice a week for 10 weeks. Uh, and sit in a sharing circle as well. And to hear people's real rock bottom everyday moments of getting out of bed without drinking is a major, major win for them. People having their children taken away, people having injunctions out on them so they can't see their children because of their drinking. And every single day they get out of bed and they might walk to this day centre or get three buses just to get there to feel they've got some hope in their life, you know. And, you know, social media is a great and wonderful place, but these people haven't even got phones off of them or, or they've just got those, like, cheap ones without internet because they can't afford a tariff and stuff like that. And somehow they find the money to to get one drink or something. And it really, really opens your eyes to how... Shit! It is, isn't it? You know, it really angers me.
1: Yeah, I think people who don't get it, you know, they haven't been there, and they they probably haven't got any of the strength those people who are in recovery have. And you imagine the focus it takes to get that money together and have that drink every day. Once you take the addiction away, these people can do amazing things with their lives. Mm. They really can put that determination into something else, and that's why peer support is so amazing because that's that's what they want to do then that's what happens a lot of the time isn't it you go from being um in addiction to in recovery to then connecting with others and helping them and it and it becomes your life purpose because you think why have I been through so much like me with my childhood why did I go through it all well it makes sense to me because now I can hopefully help a lot of other people and not in the way that I want to save them but in the way that I understand them and I can connect with them on a different level because I get it I get that like, my mum spent every day probably hating drinking but couldn't stop. I, I, I understand it. I would never think, oh, God, just stop, you know, just leave him. Just, It's not easy. It's a really, really hard thing to do. And, yeah, I feel like I've got the empathy that I might not have had if I hadn't been through it.
0: Do you have resentment towards your mum or have do you understand it enough that you've let that go or do you think that's something you still need to work on?
1: I haven't let it go and I don't need to work on it.
0: <laughs> okay, that's a great <laughs> uh, answer. Yeah,
1: so I, I don't know if you saw the last video I made. I did it with um, stop motion. It was all little figures and things. And it was all about inner child work. And it was basically saying, I'm taking away all the excuses now. I'm taking away all the reasons you drank. I simply shouldn't have been there. And it doesn't matter why mum drank or, you know, any of that. A child should never be in that situation. And that's how I see it now. So I won't ever forgive what she put me through. But also, it's okay. Yeah, I don't believe in forgiveness if it's not for me, not for anyone else. But for me, I don't need to forgive anyone. I feel happy to be like, this was just shit. This shouldn't have happened. But I'm okay with that, if that makes any sense.
0: Oh, that's amazing. Yeah, it does. That's really powerful, actually. That's really, really powerful. Well, that resonates with me with a few things as well. It's like when when my mum died, um, I kind of thought, "Why well, it is what it is. As sometimes you've got to call a spoon a spoon.
1: Yeah, and I, did, I was a bit worried about this video because I thought it might be shameful to people drinking. But this time, I'm, I keep like I'm showing off, I'm not. But I won the Recovery Street Film Festival again this year. And it was a room full of people in recovery. And I thought, gosh, how is this going to be received? And and I didn't actually enjoy winning because I felt quite shameful that I'd entered it. And I I was worried about other people there. But nobody said that. Everybody said, that's it. I need to get better for my children. It's never their responsibility. I need to do this so so that they can move on with their lives. And I need to recognize how important it is for them that I get better. Yeah, so it is a bit brutal, this one, but I, it's what inner child work did to me. I just, every situation it took me back into, I just thought, I shouldn't have been here. Someone should have picked me up and taken me away. And I know granddad did, but I always ended up back there. You know, I shouldn't have gone back there. While she was ill, I should have been kept safe. My home environment should always have been safe. And that is it with children. That's how I see it now.
0: I don't know whether you've connected with John Taylor. Um, he wrote Alcohol Stole My Mum. He's been on this podcast. and when he described how he used to make sure his mum was all right when she was drunk at such an early age and he loved her so much Mm. and cared for her so much, but it broke my heart the way he described how he would try and get onto the sofa and put a blanket over her. And
1: Mm. like,
0: it's so much responsibility, but I suppose like for me, it's, it's always hard to try and have these conversations because I was the alcoholic, you know, and, but I, I, I mean, this would be controversial for some people, I'm sure, but it, it turns you into someone really selfish because, mm. you know, like there's that whole conversation, you have a choice. I had a choice. I did have a choice. And some people say you don't. When you're hooked in addiction, you don't have a choice. You need alcohol so you can survive. I think we've all got a choice, right? And I had, I could have chosen to or not to drink, but I drank. And um, when I shouldn't have done, you know, there was times I wasn't when uh, my son was young. And I thought, you know, if anything happened and I passed out on the sofa, but there's sides of that. It's like how, how old was he when I decided that that was okay to drink? And, you know, there's so many questions I asked myself in it. And at the time. This is more what I need to do on myself here. Do you know what I mean? And this is why talking to you really helps me as well, because it's understanding from the other side. But I was incredibly selfish because I drank when I shouldn't have done.
1: I think it takes hold in a way that you, you can't help it and you, you probably would like to stop but you can't. But I have a bit of an issue with that whole thing as well, of not having a choice, because we have tiny choices, even when we're struggling as adults. And as parents, and even if that tiny, you know, just to get out, get, get a little bit of help or, or do, you know, do something really small to try and help yourself. But the only person who doesn't have a choice is a child. Mm. They have no choice because they, they can't do anything else. And for me, these campaigns that say there's, there isn't a choice, that worries me a little bit that what does that make a child listening feel like? Well, that takes it back internally to them. Because if it's not mum's choice, if I'd heard that as a child, well, it's not her choice. Oh, my God, it's my responsibility then. It's my fault. I've got to make this about me then. And I've got to look after it. That's that's just how I see it and what I think I would have responded to those sort of things as a child. I, I really get that it changes you. And my mum was two different people. For me, as a voice of the child of an alcoholic, I would say the choice is really just not with the child.
0: I hear that. Goosebumps stuff, that. and. With your mum, did you find, did she overcompensate when she'd come out of her drinking stint? Because you said she was two different people.
1: Yeah. Oh, God. She was just wicked when she didn't drink. She was amazing. She was just so funny. And we were like sisters. She'd always make me nice food. Like, she'd buy me stuff. She'd be like, what do you want? And she'd get me anything I wanted. And she'd buy me presents. So when she wasn't looking after me, she'd come at Christmas with loads of presents for me. Things like that. But she was always not very well. So when she wasn't drinking, she was quite irritable and stuff. But I I remember last time when I was on your live, I read that poem called The Glimpse I Had of You. Because I'm really grateful for those glimpses. You know, the times she could make it to school to pick me up. The times when I wasn't sleeping at night and she'd help me with it. There were lots of memories there that are really special and that I can pass on to my children now. Like all my silly ways and annoying ways are all from her and I love it. And I love how silly they are because of her. So there's so much I can take from her. And I just see that completely separate now to her drinking. She wasn't the same person.
0: That's really sad. That makes me feel really sad because you you had two versions of someone and and that the first version when you were like sisters is so amazing. So I imagine for you to see her slipping, morphing into the other person was even more heartbreaking.
1: Mm. It's it's what makes it hard now is, you know, if she'd been horrible, I wouldn't care that she's not here, but that's what really makes me sad now. I think I just would love her to have met my children. I'd love her to be here, you know, when I'm having a bad day, I'd love to ring her and just say, Come and help me, please. But I never do that. I never ask anyone for help. I am a parent who has to be strong all the time because there isn't anyone to ask. It's it's really hard not having her here. And I can't think about her most of the time because it's too it's too hard. Because she she was literally perfect to me in every yeah. way, apart yeah. from the drinking. She I couldn't have I you know, I used to lie there in bed and I used to think, about my friends' mums and think, oh, what if you could swap her? You know, like a bit of a silly game in my imagination. I used to think I'd never swap her. And that was even when she was drinking because she was just she was just like me. We got each other. And that's just what makes it really rubbish now is like, this is forever. And this year it's 20 years. And I'm like, I've lived without her for 20 years. And I only lived with her for 21. And I've got to carry on living without her forever. And I just think, oh God, yeah. I think this year is going to be a bit of a tough one because of that.
0: We were chatting before this uh, podcast and and this is quite a pivotal year for you, isn't it? It's almost like a line in the sand, I think, that you're going to move direction um, by not talking about it so much.
1: Yeah, I keep thinking about it. and, And to be honest, my memories are fading over. I'm not a young girl anymore. I'm 41 and I can't speak about it as much anymore. And because I can't remember as much and it's just every time I talk about it to you it feels like a chat now but every time I do any news interview or things like that it it drains the life from me for months Mm. it's it's not an easy thing to do to talk about her is it feels really important I Mm. really want to let other people know they're not alone but it is hard And and it doesn't get easier to be honest because she's still gone so I think what I want to do now is focus my time on supporting others in the best way I can and, and, you know, having that empathy for them in the way that I can help them and training to be a therapist myself. I've got another three years left, but um, I'm starting my first placement this year. So I feel like I'm going to carry on shouting about Nakoa from the rooftops and doing all I can, but it's going to become less about my story now because it takes me back there every time. And that's hard. And, And my children, my children need me. They need me to be present and, and it's really hard being a mum when you've been a COA because you always think you're going to mess them up. And you, oh, it's this real difficult thing about I want to be the perfect parent, but I'm going to become my mum and I'm going to traumatize them. It's hard being a mum. So I just feel like I want to be a lot more present now and thinking about the future after this year.
0: I mean, I think you would make an amazing therapist myself. I, I did two years uh, studying counselling and uh, that's when my mum died and it just put the spanner in the works. So I wasn't uh, doing my homework and that, but I met some amazing people as well with real empathy and some real skills, but I, I can pick that up on you that I think you'd be wonderful. And I think it's a really good move that you're going to start to leave it behind because that's what I'm doing now. Because I'm not saying I'm bored of my own voice talking about it, but I've done so much more with my self-development now that I feel like I want to enter a new phase. So when I get invited onto podcasts and they say, we want to hear your story, it's like, "Mm, you can hear about what I'm doing now and what I plan for the future. And sometimes I don't know what I plan for the future as well, you know. I'm in a bit of a limbo at the moment is I'm not sure where I am. So I'm sitting with that. I'm not pushing it, you know. Yeah. But I'm leaving the door open to think, okay, I know what I don't want to do, but I'm not sure what I actually want to do, but that's okay. I'm just in that sort of settling down stage and whatever. But you know, we're, we're, um, doing a couple of things. I'm, uh, meeting you next week. So this would be in the past by the time this is her, but we're, we're, uh, meeting. There's a speech in parliament. Vicky Patterson's a new patron, isn't she, of Nicoa? Um, yeah. which is great news and i I saw on the telly the other day, and I thought she spoke really eloquently uh about her new role um, yeah, because it's really she's in that doc. yeah, it's really exciting uh I'm gonna meet you there, and uh i I don't think you're doing that walk, are you? No,
1: sorry, I was just gonna say to you you know anything you think's brewing, but you don't know which direction you're going in, yeah, you'll get it on that walk. I think you know when you walk for a long time, this is gonna be really good for you, Dave because you're gonna come out of it and go, I know where my life's going. You will, honestly. I can't wait to see where it takes
0: you. Well, that's what I did last weekend with that with that walk walk um on the South Downs. And you know what that's done, that's cleared away all the cobwebs in my head. I made a point of coming off social media, limiting phone calls, TV, reading. I just sat with myself, right? And what it did, it brought up certain things, right? but it allowed me headspace and that's really, really important because in these times that we've got the instant gratification of the scrolling, Netflix, you know, there's so much out there and the busy lives we lead, I actually thought, you know what, I'm not even going to listen to music or podcasts or what I want to, and I came back from that and um, I I feel like something's happening, but I think being around wonderful people, Raising money for charity, and let's face it, the Coa need it after the government cut their funding, which is a whole new conversation. I think it's going to be really, really wonderful. And do you know what I'm doing after that? Two days after that? Something else crazy. Flying to Morocco. Oh my God. Yeah.
1: Well, wow. what's
0: um, that for? Climbing a mountain in Morocco. Is that
1: for charity?
0: Well, it isn't exactly. I could, but I want to raise money from the Coa. So. I'm probably just doing that off my own back. There's a few of us that we got guides and we're going to sleep up in a mountain, but none of this stuff I'd be doing if I was doing none, none of any of this, if I were, I'll probably be dead for a start, you know, what a waste of life, but, as you, I get a lot of pleasure helping people. That's why we record these podcasts, because th- there are always people that hook in and they go, oh, I heard Kerry the other day on your podcast and it really resonated with me and I could understand where she's coming from. And it's so important to do the work we do. But I think it's equally important to to set time aside to have self-development, Time with a family, you know, like all the things that nurture your life as well.
1: I, I just don't get a buzz from social media in the way of supporting people like I used to, like working on the ground with them. I really feel that connection. But when you put stuff out on social media, you don't feel it back in the same way. And I actually found it quite lonely. And once I realized that, what I like social media for now is just being a bit more silly, just a bit of a light connection. But I realized I wasn't getting it in that way. It's kind of done the opposite to me. Instead of pulling me in, it's pulled me out. And I thought, oh, yeah. I need real life connection. I need to feel an energy in a room from people. Yeah. And that's why I thought becoming a therapist, I can really do that. I can really connect on a on a deeper level. But I think it could be really good in other ways for finding your tribe, like the sober community, the COA community. I've got some of my best friends who I'm going to be seeing next week at the House of Commons that I haven't – i don't i can't imagine being without now you know any times mm. i am struggling i connect with them so it's been amazing but where i am right now like you i've had a bit of a like oh there's something really shifting for me mm. i don't want to tell my story on social media anymore or anything like that i want to yeah take it in a different direction so you'll find maybe your... it's
0: that physical connection as well you know like because we were thrown into this world in lockdown we 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 discovered Zoom and it's like, what is Zoom? What the hell? Are, how do we work that right? And then all of a sudden, everything's on Zoom. Our lives on Instagram are on the version of Zoom. You know, like it's all Zoom. There's nothing like meeting someone, looking them in the eyes, giving them a hug and saying, I'm really proud of you. You know, that physical human connection is so important, especially when it comes to addiction children of alcoholics, you know, that, that sitting across a table with someone and having that dialect personally is so powerful.
1: Yeah, yeah. But I've got, um, I've been working on this, actually. I've got a real thing about hugs. Ah. Um, my, my friends would all laugh and say that I don't really like them. And one actually got me a badge, which said, don't hug me. But um, I realised the other week, I don't mind hugs from men, but I don't really like them from women. Mm. and I thought, what's that about? But I think it is because I lost trust in mum, and I remember we didn't have any physical connection at all towards the end because I didn't trust her anymore. But I really trusted my granddad, and he always kept me safe. So when men hug me, I feel quite safe. But when women do, I don't know, something feels quite, um, I don't know, I don't like it as much. So That's
0: interesting because your first, like, the role model in your life when you were four was really... Danger. There was danger there, wasn't he? So that that's uh interesting because you would think it would might be the other way around.
1: I know. I thought I was really scared of men, but actually I think because my granddad was so strong and he really kept me safe. Yeah, it's it's really weird. I've only really worked this out in the last few weeks. It's very strange. But um I thought I was not a huggy person, but it appears I am with men. <laughs>
0: Well, it's weird as well, you know, because um, when I did my two years counselling course, that was part of it—is like shaking someone's hand, giving them a hug. It was all about that. How do you know that person hasn't been abused, and and uh, and that that is a real um, intrusion on their boundaries? And I start to think about that after. It's like I automatically give someone a hug if I meet them or shake their hand. And actually, when this subject come up, there were at least four or five in the group that said they, they don't like that human connection because of stuff from their past. And I think we just take it for granted. It's like, oh, i am being really, really friendly. Come here. It's a really interesting subject, actually.
1: <laughs> yeah, because some people just don't feel that way, do they? Yeah, no. I had a little moment in college last week where we had to do a diagram of sort of some of our trauma and what it's caused. And I got a little bit upset at one point and the woman next to me said, would you like a hug? And I said, no, thank you. And it was so lovely that she asked me and I was able to say no. And she was absolutely fine about it. And I thought, oh, yeah, that's really good. That's what I do, because I know what you mean. It's like, give someone a tissue, give them a hug. But actually, is that what they want? Or are you trying to kind of shut down what's happening? When sometimes people do just need to feel sad and just feel their emotions because it's really hard to to feel sometimes like when you've never been able to my feelings were never allowed when I was young it was always about my mum I couldn't even cry I couldn't be anything I just had to be strong for her so now if I feel like I'm going to cry it's actually a real good release it's 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 a good thing isn't it crying it's not a bad shameful
0: thing no it isn't it's it's powerful um before we go Kerry have you got any advice for anyone hearing this that they feel you know, this conversation has been of use or they've they go, gone through a similar experience. What would you say to them?
1: I'd say go on the covers website. It will change your life. Um, the first thing I ever did was read their personal experiences page. Just mm. read what others have been through and you'll think, oh my God, like everyone you'll relate something to. And mm. then check out their message boards. Have a look at some of the videos I've made. All my videos are on there. There's some amazing books like just, have a little look around. You don't have to do anything. No one has to know. But just have a little explore and see how it makes you feel. And then, you know, call them if you need to. But um there's loads of communities around. Just don't be alone anymore. Because I'm sure you've been alone for a long time if you're listening to this and
0: connecting. Oh, that's really powerful. Yeah. Community is everything, you know. Um and that's how I found my tribe in the beginning because I felt I was just treading water on my own and, and drinking was lonely enough for me and I didn't need that in sobriety and once I found people like-minded to me and understood there's a, a unspoken code of I get you you know and I think it's with COAs as well you just know you understand what you've been through and whatever and that's brilliant Kerry I'm so grateful that you've taken the time today to join me I'm so no, it's been a pleasure. and I'm really excited about um what you've got ahead of you as well what work you're going to be doing and uh are there any more films going to be made
1: i don't know i just, they just come out of nowhere the films do i'll have a thought and then i just don't stop until it's done so you never know <laughs> i don't plan these things they just happen
0: <laughs> oh bless you well thank you darling so much for joining me and i will see you soon
1: thank you dave okay take
0: it easy bye I really hope you enjoyed the show today. Don't forget to subscribe and leave a review. For further support, you can buy my book, One for the Road, on Amazon, and you can also follow me on Instagram, at Sober Dave. Please remember to join me for next week's episode. Until then, thanks for listening and have a great week.